Hey everybody, it's time for today's STEM tip. Want to know how to make your selfies even better? Okay, let's use science. The best time for photos is golden hour. That's the moment right before the sun sets, when the atmosphere scatters blue and violet wavelengths, making perfect, soft, and golden selfie light to show off that beautiful face of yours. Click. Check out She Can STEM for more inspiration. A message from the Ad Council. Welcome to Mighty Parenting, the podcast with real, raw, and relevant talk about raising teens and parenting young adults. Welcome to Mighty Parenting, a community where we help you raise teens and parent 20-somethings so they can become happy, successful, and emotionally healthy adults. I'm Sandy Fowler, stress relief coach, emotional wellness speaker, host of the Mighty Parenting podcast, and co-founder of MightyParenting.com. Mighty Parenting is more than a podcast. We have information and tools for you, and I am available to do presentations for parent groups in person or virtual. So pop on over to MightyParenting.com to see all that we have for you. Today, we are talking about agency, the ability to direct our lives. I think that as parents, this is something we don't really contemplate for our kids or even ourselves, really. You know, our kids will tell us that they want to or they're ready to, rec- to direct their own lives. They want us to back off. You know, we've talked on the show about letting go of the reins and letting them be in control and doing that slowly over their lifetime. But can they? Do they have what it takes? And what does that even mean? You know, what impacts their ability to direct their lives? Well, today's guest is going to help us with that. He is Dr. Anthony Rayo, and he is a cognitive behavioral therapist who worked as a pediatric psychologist at Boston Children's Hospital for over 20 years, as an instructor at Harvard Medical School, and has run a specialized private practice since 1998. He is also a co-author of the new book, The Power of Agency, The Seven Principles to Conquer Obstacles, make effective decisions, and create a life on your own terms. Dr. Rayo, welcome back to Mighty Parenting. Sandy, thank you so much. Hope you're doing well, and uh, it's great to be back. Yeah, so any new listeners, Dr. Rayo was on the show in April giving us tips for parenting through the pandemic. So we're pre-recording. I cannot predict what the world is going to be like when this actually airs, you may want to go back and listen to that episode and get some tips. But I think they're also great tips for any time that our world turns a little topsy-turvy because that just happens through life. But today we're going to be a little bit more settled, a little bit more, feel a little bit more in control. And so I want to talk about your book and some of the ideas in there, Anthony. In The Power of Agency, you reference a silent epidemic. What is that? Well, you know, we as Americans, (laughs) this is no news to the parents who are listening, are already a bit stressed, uh, tense, worried, um, you know, sometimes up at night, can't sleep, uh, incredibly busy during the day. Uh, We're an incredible country of incredibly high producing, uh, smart people, um, who just don't ever take a break. Um, 
And it turns out that, and, and people have been following this, researchers, epidemiologists have been following rates of anxiety and stress in the United States over many, many, many years, actually several decades, beginning back in the you know, late 1930s, in fact, uh, just sort of tracking it. And it's been climbing substantially over the decades. Um, you know, around the 50s, it went up, all that from just high productivity, you know, um, the highway system came in and from Eisenhower and we were traveling more and uh, productivity post-war and just, it was actually really, many people felt was a really, you know, positive and forward moving time in some respects and others perhaps not, but there was a lot of productivity with that comes stress. So eh, it's kind of creeping up there. But once we get to around the year well, 2000 or a little bit before, we believe mainly from social media, high-speed internet, globalization, a lot of stimulation coming into our minds and bodies and through our homes every day, we are very much jazzed up our minds. And we have been seeing anxiety creep up to levels that are some of the highest in the world. In fact, the World Health Organization um, over the last few years has labeled us as one of the most anxious places on the planet. This is pre-pandemic, if you will. So, um, so, so my co-author and I uh, have been seeing this climb in our respective work streams uh, among people who are otherwise, you know, high achieving, doing well, needing some coaching and help once in a while, um, falling flat, feeling overwhelmed. Um, and so we begin to dig and look at all the research and realize that, and we're calling it the age of overwhelm, where just baseline, normal, everyday stress and anxiety is so high that many of us have already tipped past the diagnostic curve. So as it turns out, uh, we have some of the highest rates of anxiety among our adults and certainly our adolescents. Uh, most countries or pretty much any country at this point, but we've been there a while. Uh, one of the statistics that really got me was beginning in the 1980s, the average school age kid, just the average kid was carrying around levels of anxiety that were a lot like a child psychiatric inpatient of the 1950s. That's how much it's climbed up. That statistic floored me when I read that in your book. I, I know anxiety is going up. I have talked to people about it. I've listened to all kinds of different lectures. I've been at events. And so I've heard a lot about this. But to see that statistic, that our kids are now what, the average kid now is what in the 1950s would have been a child being treated for a mental disorder. That's just mind boggling to me. Yeah, no, we is. consider that normal. <laughs> no. And, and I would say, uh, okay, maybe that was just one study because in research, you know, we look at how data accumulate over time and make a decision that, okay, one study can find this, maybe the next doesn't, uh, but then two more do. And, you know, and then pulling it all together Well, the data just have continued to climb and it is absolutely clear. It isn't like we're just getting better at finding anxiety in kids and adults. That's why we're reporting it more. Yeah, we've gotten a little bit better in it, but <laughs> frankly, we've been tracking it since the 30s pretty consistently. Uh, it is climbing and just in all sorts of other studies. You know, this age range for which your show is, is really beautifully situated, this sort of, you know, teen through say early 20s, um, that is sadly the sweet spot, if you will, of where anxiety and stress is at its highest. Um, we are beginning to say that this generation, that age range, may be the least healthy 
mental health wise of any generation we've ever been able to track. And yet they're incredibly high productive, you know, grade point averages are higher than ever. Um, you know, they're, they're performing in sports at, at higher levels. They're, they're achieving more. So they, they look great on paper, but a lot of these kids, and I, I work with these kids and I, and I talk with them and, you know, and they, and they confide in me are, are really feeling like they've lost their ability to control their lives. That's what got us interested in this topic on agency, human agency, which is a word that people, you know, they've heard it, they're not exactly sure what it means, but, you know, basically it's this idea that you're in control of your life and you have a, the ability to use the best parts of yourself in order to move yourself forward in the most positive ways to achieve the goals you want. And that's when we feel happy and feel alive, not bogged down when we're anxious. And remember, we've just said how anxious we all are, our kids in particular, we're at a very low level of human agency. Our agency is, is at a point where we begin to feel perhaps sometimes helpless, hopeless, we can even get depressed. So, so we were thinking, well, this is a great concept, but it's, it's really only been tackled by, you know, psychologists, sociologists. Could we put this into practical tools, put it into principles that people could follow really easily every day and then get them to have more control, more power in their life? Can we teach this to kids? Can we certainly teach it to adolescents? And the answer is yes. And that was one of the things that I loved about this book is I see the problems. And again, as I said, we've, we've talked about the fact that our kids are getting more anxious, but the steps and the techniques that you talk about in the book are pretty simple and straightforward. I mean, this isn't complicated. This isn't psychobabble. This, this is not um, something that's beyond the average parent. So could you share a little bit about what you found that actually supports agency that kind of increases that self-esteem, makes us feel that we're in control and, and kind of put us in that place where we're willing to take the reins and be in control? Oh, I'd, I'd, I'd love to. I'd love for the opportunity to do this. Thank you. And, um, you know, and first let me say that it isn't that, you know, Dr. Paul Knapper and myself are just sort of like magicians here and just know everything. And, you know, we, we got it from you. We got it from all the parents, all the people that Paul works with uh, in, in, in the business world and the managers. And, and I've seen it uh, bubble up in my meetings with parents who have, who have taught me sort of like, when is it that we lose that sense of control, um, that even that feeling like we're not authentic and we don't have as much meaning in our life? Like, 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 like what happens? What caused it? What can we do to reverse it? And, and we pulled from all those years of combined experience and begin to distill it down. Then we went out and we interviewed a hundred people that were identified to us as what we would call high agency people that despite being in the stresses of the day, they, they seem to know how to navigate, pivot, seem to have a little bit more resilience, a little bit more grit or some of the other terms that, that people have thrown around. But we wanted to do something different. We wanted to distill this down into practical, simple things to follow. So we came up with seven principles. And the first three are well within reach. They're the ones I tell people, hey, go to first as soon as you feel a little tension or anxiety. Um, and their names are control stimuli. We gave them kind of cool sounding names. <laughs> Associate selectively 
and move. And I'll, I'll just walk you through those really, really quickly. We can go into the other ones later. And those are a little bit more complex. They involve how we think. But these first three are how we behave, how we choose to behave. So the first one is called control stimuli. We realize that you are no good to yourself or your kids if you don't have a clear mind. If your mind is bogged down with all the information and digital stimulation coming in, to which it's constant these days, if we don't control it at that gate, the mind can't make eventually good decisions for itself. And let's face it, you know, we're, we're the sum of all the decisions we make, you know, by the end of the day, the week, or the years of our lives. So, uh, so, so we go through some sort of practical strategies throughout the book and we do it through stories, but um, each chapter is just a place that you can just go to directly. There's a definition right there, what control stimuli means, which is, you know, controlling that external stimulation that really affects the quality of your thinking and decision-making and your judgment. So here are some tips and tools. Um, we have a tool kit right at the back of each chapter. So, so this book is meant to sort of, you know, go in, go where you think you need it. We even have in the front of the book um, um, a very simple um, inventory that we put together and have tested out and has some, some great validity on it, just that allows you to say, hey, how am I doing on these seven practices? <laughs> so you can run through it, score it yourself, and then you'll know. Um, but that's where we start. And I, I, I turn everybody back to that. And it's not as simple as shutting off your phone or maybe I won't watch the news as much. I mean, those are great. It's, it's this idea that you've got to now think about what's getting in to begin with. This may also be background music noise, vibrations. Uh, stimulation can also be in the sense of, well, my, my skin is feeling really hot or it's cold and that's distracting. Any distraction will lower your ability to think well, so 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 that's where we start, and we have we have a lot of interesting stories about how people try to navigate that uh, in clever ways, particularly with the digital uh, you know revolution, if you will, on us. The next one is one of my favorites, called associate selectively, and uh, there's a lot of interesting research out there that just the people you tend to be around during the day, the people that you associate with, um, they actually affect your behavior, your health, your mood, your thinking. And, they, and it's all done quite unconsciously because why we pick up each other's signals and meanings of what they're saying and we internalize them and they become our own automatically. There's something called mirror neurons. It's a, it's a very interesting thing. Uh, we actually have the same neurons tend to fire when we see someone act angry or anxious or say things. We, we actually, those parts of our brain light up too, even though we don't necessarily have to act on it. And you've, you've been with somebody who's been anxious or sad for a while and you're helping them out and you walk off and don't you realize your mood just changed? You've been in a room where people are really, you know, excited and happy and, um, and you feel that, that contagion in a good way. <laughs> it is, it's emotional contagion. So we talk in the book about like, how do you manage that? How do you teach your kids about the company they keep and how it matters? And usually that becomes the biggest fight in the house. You can't tell me what friends I have. You know, I'm, <laughs> I can make my own decisions. They're my friends. Um, and we've got to walk people through like how to talk with your kids. And, and I can tell you right now, the best thing to do is step out of the parent role and say, look, you know, you're right. And I can't tell you what to do and you're in control. Enlist them to use their own critical thinking skills. These are such smart people by the time they're 13, 14, 15, even though they're highly emotional, even though they're not making the best choices and may be impulsive. Say, look, you must have friends that you know are hanging with friends that aren't good for them. How do you tell them that maybe they should think this through? Like, how, how can a kid 
that's maybe, you know, feeling that they're in over their head trying to help another kid who's emotionally distraught is maybe themselves getting hurt. Like, what would you do in that situation? Put it into that third person, you know, a little bit more like a teacher, if you will, rather than, look, I don't like you hanging around those kids because this happens. Um, so, so that's a really powerful one, particularly if you have teenagers, but we associate pretty much since we start moving and walking and, and speaking. So, um, and the third one, uh, really important is we, we called it move and it's really about our whole health. You know, it, it occurred to us by looking through all the research and talking to all the experts um, that, um, and also the people with high agency, that, that movement may be central to better thinking, that it may help decrease negative mood, and that movement, particularly outdoor movement, particularly in natural settings, um, helps immune responses. It, 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 it also helps for sleep cycles. Um, it it re- relates to better nutrition. If the whole body is healthy, the decisions that your body make, because we make decisions with our bodies, not just our brains, the whole body participates. So the most recent medical research is suggesting. So the healthier we are, the more we move, the more nutrition, and we're listening to our signals of our body. So we, we just don't sort of motor on if we're tired. We don't motor on when we're hungry. We, we don't skip meals. We, we, we really listen to it all. The end product, the decisions you end up making turn out to be better. So, so those are the first three, and you get a sense right there. You know, they're they're actually not that complex. And 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 to me personally, they're my go-to's. You know, every day I'm like, oh, I I've been I have too much news in my head. I I've been on the the screens too much. I, what do I do? Is I actually get up because movement tends to negate overstimulation. You know, I try to leave my phone in the house. I go out to the yard, stand on the deck quickly stretch, breathe, do a couple of meditative like pieces that I've learned over the years uh, and then get back in and I feel refreshed. And I'd like to um, spend a little time in this. I, I know you have the other principles, but there's no way we can cover it all in one podcast. And it's laid out so beautifully in the book that I know that parents can get really what they need there. But like you said, these three are go-tos. And a couple of things have struck me about this. One is that these aren't strategies that necessarily are something we need to take more time to do. I know when I have spoken at colleges, I was at MSU vet school doing a stress relief talk. And these kids are like, I do not have five minutes in my day to sit down and meditate. I, in, in talking with them, their schedules were crazy. It was absolutely nuts. And so what you're telling me is not that I need to add more things in or that I need to encourage my kid to add more things in. And in fact, it seems to me that using these techniques would free up more time in my day. So There's I, evidence of that, in fact. Really? you just said. Um, if, if, if I adhere to these three basic best practices of how to take care of my, my mind, uh, stay in healthy relationships, even in small little micro moments in relationships, uh, a phone call, a text. Um, and I have a lot of really good sort of physical health and movement and mind body going on that, that I actually think better. I'm more efficient. I'm more focused. Um, I get more done. I feel better. And I hear that from parents, it, you know, for the early birds versus the night owls, it'll be oh, after everybody goes to bed, I can get so much done. Or first thing in the morning before anybody else is running around, I can get things done. 
And that's really a controlling the stimuli, the other people, the sounds, the, the questions, the everything that's coming at you is gone. And you actually have that control again. And so you're encouraging us to teach our kids to do this so they can feel more in control of their lives and have that agency to be able to really direct their life. Is that correct? That, that's right. But we can't teach kids unless we model it first, right? So yes. I, I, I start with that, which is what are we doing in front of them? And you don't even have to teach them. They They will learn vicariously just from being in a home where things are set up a little differently. So I would say, you know, uh, you're the leader of your home and you can decide that, okay, you know, I can, I can demand that certainly during meals, you know, all phones are not only off, but they literally need to be in another room. Why? Because, and I think it's in this chapter, we mentioned this, some recent re research has shown that just if I have the phone near me shut off, my brain is still signaling me to think about it. Even if it's in my pocket, it's touching my skin. If I have it near me, uh, it's somewhat within vision range. Um, an amazing study showed this versus people who were told to leave their phones shut off outside. There should be no difference. What is there, some sort of magical, you know, magnetic or, you know, kryptonite field that's affecting them? But the closer your phone, even shut off, is to you, your device the brain has already been conditioned over countless hours to think that you need this thing. So it's always cueing you, even unconsciously, go check it, go check it, go check it. Definitely at night. So you can say none at night. You can say none during meals. You can say, look, if we're having a serious family meeting, let's, let's put, a, put all our devices over there. Um, you know, in the office, I, I'm struggling with this because a lot of parents have to check on where their kids are at. The babysitter's got this person. That's why they were able to come to the appointment on time. Or they're, so, they, so they need these devices. We need these devices to manage our lives. But there should come a point where we're like, okay, it's now time to literally cut them off. And I've noticed since I've been explaining this to people uh, in my work, they're like, okay, I get it now. Shut off in the bag or the briefcase, or they move it literally to a desk or someplace else and put their keys on it so they don't forget it and leave it there when they leave. So it's, it's this idea of like this thing, even shut off, is really powerful. So, so I think that there's a lot we do, but we start. We, we have to start with ourselves and model it. And I appreciate you sharing that there are different ways of doing this because you, you said, yes, we need these devices. One of the things that I practice periodically is going, and is that true? It goes back to Byron Katie, right? In her work, is that true? And I had learned this from our family vacations. Once I started my own business is I didn't feel like I was on vacation, even though the phone was turned off in the car and I only checked it once a day, I still had to tether in. And same thing when you go, you know, go out someplace. And so I had started picking certain situations to say, you cannot get a hold of me via my phone. If it's actually an emergency, here's the phone number, you know, my doctor's office. Here's, you know, here's the, the front desk phone number. If it's an emergency, call and they'll come get me. Which also cuts down because then people don't just have a question and text you. They only contact you if it's actually an emergency, like the good old days. So there are things that we can do. And your book inspired me. I haven't gotten to do it yet. But I'm going to talk to my family about making our living room a device-free zone. Even just trying that, you know, one day a week or something. See what the family comes up with. Or maybe they'll come up with a total different idea. But 
toss that out there and see if we can come up with a space. Maybe it's a different space in the house, but this idea of there are other stimuli too. It's not just about phones and devices. It's also about music, which in our world comes from our devices, right? So it's the music, it's the the touch, it's all these different things. So it's kind of a creating a space where everyone can be in control of their own stimulation within our household. Yeah, I love all that. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't mind if these devices gave us the real deal, which is full multi-sensory experiences that our brain is hungry for, starving for in the digital world right now. It's mostly visual. Sometimes it's through our ears, auditory. It's flat. It's not in real space. You can't really truly touch it. Can't smell it. Can't taste it. You can't, you know, the brain was intended for just thousands, millions of sensory inputs at any moment while you navigated through the real world. And, and that's where we are most alive, where we're living a real world. But the more that you're staring at a small screen, it's, it's, it's really cut down tremendously. It's, it's, it's very, very, very much a, 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 a virtual experience. We're kind of missing out on really authentic life at this point. I, I want to touch upon something um, that you were, you were going toward that I, that I thought was important. You know, you're going to try to say, look, when we're in the car, no devices, when I'm certainly driving. They, Massachusetts here, they passed a law that they were very strict about and they had, <laughs> they had officers and, and uh, from all towns and um, I noticed state troopers out that, that next day. Um, you cannot touch your phone unless you're putting it, <laughs> putting on some sort of, you know, ear device or something, you know. Um, and 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 I, it was very interesting because that next day, um, and I'm a rule follower, <laughs> um, I'm looking around. There were just seen cops everywhere suddenly. Um, and And I found this amazing relief. And I heard this too from some of the younger, newer drivers who... Some of them are very rule following too. And they're like, I don't want to lose my license. So I just don't bring the phone or it's in the glove compartment. And most of them though, push the envelope like most of us do on how much we feel, how confident we can be managing that and affecting our ability to drive safely. So I actually found it liberating to not have to have even the option. And I'm wondering if kids would feel the same way. They, they will bark back at you. But the other thing is, you will hear the word is, I'm bored, I'm bored, Ugh, mm-hmm. this is so boring. Yay! <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. I want you to say, awesome, congratulations. Why? Because you're entering into deeper thought. And let's face it, with all of these devices, we really have not experienced that, what we call boredom, which really is just the transition between high stimulation, it's always here, it's very easy, it's very emotional, to, hmm, what's beneath the surface? What's, what's bubbling up? What's creative? Can I go deeper? That's really enjoyable, but making that transition, getting over that boredom bridge is really, really tough. So expect that and just smile, shrug, and just say, you know what, this is something really great on the other side, you know? And, and uh, you know, during times when people have not been around devices for long periods of time, for whatever reasons, and camps are a great example. I do a lot of work with, uh, you know, camping groups. Um, you know, most of those devices are just gone. Or shut down. The kids complain, but they they report how, while it was hard, maybe for the first few hours or a day or two, the relief they felt to not have to be, particularly on social media. 
Yeah, it is. It's a huge relief. And I, I could talk for 20 minutes just on what I've learned because we're a camping family. We tent camp, we cook over fire, we backpack. And I've seen over the years how devices have impacted that. But there's one other thing I want to talk about that I think is um, more urgent and newer. You know, we've talked a lot about devices on the show. And what we haven't talked about is your idea of associate selectively. So first, if you can just tell us briefly what that is, and then I can uh, share my question with you. Sure. Um, think about associate selectively. Here's like the, the simplest way to look at it is that you want to surround yourself with a, you know, supportive and open-minded people, people that would help you feel supported, feel positive, support your, your health, your happiness. You know, I'm not looking to ask people to be around people that yes them all the time or fill their heads with sort of like, you're great no matter what, or false self-esteem or just happiness at all costs, but to just sort of like, you know, who I interact with ultimately affects where I land, what I do, how I speak, how I think. So that's it. I'm going to be, I'm going to be a little more selective about and thinking about who I'm spending time with and why. And, and that could be a challenge because we don't have a lot of choice sometimes with who we spend time with. But you can look through the whole thing of there's obviously, you know, spouses, co-parents, caregivers, peers, schools, teachers, coaches, you know, teammates, uh, our communities, uh, you know. Um, so it's, it's uh, you know, romantic partners and dating for, for, for young adults and just this this sort of like whoever we're with matters. And, um, and sort of like being able to explain that to your kids, show it to them. They already talk a lot about this. You know, when I'm talking with them, they, they've learned to be, you know, they can be very open with me and talk with me because they know I'm not going to rush back and either judge them or tell their parents every little thing. And, and so I hear this and they, they are thinking a lot about who should I be a friend with? What is it like stuck in that group? That puts other kids down? What is it like when I walk through the lunchroom? And sometimes I wonder, like, I'm sort of shifting a couple of friends, but I notice that group gives me a hard time when I do it. Really looking at the big picture here, particularly through high school, which is the toughest time to associate selectively. Maybe middle school too, now that I think of it. Yeah. And I appreciate knowing that our kids are thinking about this. I I feel like that makes it um, more easy to open that conversation instead of us feeling like we need to get an idea across to them, they're already thinking about it. So we just need to be there and open the door and let them know we're there to listen. And they can, we can be a sounding board or they can just air that to us. And you gave us some great verbiage earlier, which I'll make sure is in the show notes too, about how to talk to them if maybe there are friends that they're hanging out with we aren't comfortable with. But you already touched on it briefly in there. And your book is the first place I've seen a really head-on directly address the fact that we don't always have a choice about who's in our life and who we have to associate with. So our kids have to live with their parents or siblings and you know they're in a classroom with other people. Granted, that's not their friend group, but I'm thinking mostly about that family unit. And so I would love if you can share some of the advice that you have for us when, okay, this maybe isn't a person who impacts us well, 
they tend to be down or negative, or they maybe make negative comments to us. So we can't just choose to walk away. Or even in cases, you know, you talked about in your book too, where people could have that choice. They, they made other choices first and didn't necessarily end up having to walk away. So if you could talk to us a little bit about, um, about being selective, but not necessarily a yes or no, you know, I'm in your life or I'm out of your life, that there is a middle ground. Oh, I appreciate you bringing this up, Sandy, because, you know, we, we all have people in our lives, uh, people that we even love uh, or have loved at times that, that are, they could be really difficult going through a hard time or, or aren't necessarily most healthy for us. Um, we can be in, you know, families where uh, sibling rivalry can go beyond what's normal healthy rivalry into, into something that's more toxic. Um, there could be fighting between spouses. Uh, there can be uh, parent-child conflicts that are, that are you know, belong in a, a gladiator movie <laughs> than, more than at the dinner table. So, so all this is true. So, you know, you can also be in a position of uh, where a, a boss or a supervisor is, is mistreating you. And so, so there's a lot of places where we can't just necessarily get up and walk away, nor would we want to. Um, and so we tell people, like, look, don't give up. Um, but go back to some of the basics of like, is this something that could be a communication issue? Um, assume good intent and go from there. And that's hard to do when you're really hurt or people are making you angry or have, have caused uh, conflict in your life. Assume positive intent and work from there. Um, is this something in the way that I set it up? You know, this is more of the adult level, but you can have these discussions with your adolescence. And um, one thing that I've actually done in the office is I'll, I'll sit down and I'll say, and this goes back to this point of model it for them first before you teach them the skill, is I'll take out a piece of paper and I'll actually make like a, like a, like a social map. In other words, I'll just make a bunch of circles and I'll say, I'm in the middle here. I'll put a big T for Tony. Sometimes they call me Dr. T, so I'll do a Dr. T. I said, okay, there's a spouse here. There's a thing here. These are my friends. My colleague across the hall is here. These are my other friends. And I start to just plot out a couple of people. So I look and I hand it over and I say, so, so, so help me figure out like, like how would I know this is a good person for me or not? And I actually put them in the position of mastery and, and, and ask them to help me with something. I know it's a really awkward, strange thing to do with your kids, but if you start younger, this is not a bad exercise to play with because they're going to be growing up. They're going to become young adults and we can't always think of them as kids. We have to start thinking of them as adults and that we have to move from an adult to an, a child relationship to a adult to an adult relationship. If you want to have some influence over them, otherwise they keep deflecting, shutting down, um, pushing back. So, so I'll do something like that and then, and then they'll participate and just sort of like, like this is just an exercise, but getting it particularly on paper is really interesting. Sometimes I've just gone to the point of, okay, um, this is a tough year, put yourself in the middle, you know, put your initials in that, draw a circle, give me some other circles around it. Uh, who are the teachers? Who are the people that are closest to you? Who do you trust the most? And they'll just start to plot the people that are, they like the most, that help them the most. Where's the bully? The bully is far off over here. Uh, where, you know, where's the, where, where's the person that mistreats you this way or acts like a friend, but isn't. And now you have this like visual map of just little boxes or squares. And yeah, it's very simple to do. You can do it any way you want. There's no right or wrong, but now it's, it's visual. It's not just, we're having a conversation about it. I can look at this thing and I can say, ah, I see what's happening. What can I do to bring these people closer to me? This person further away. Um, in, in one of these maps that I did with a young man in the office, 
he actually had the bully negative one really close to him. Why? Because that person he had tried to befriend and was stuck in a social group with them. The other kids that actually he had dismissed and thought they weren't really like that cool or maybe were less popular. This was around eighth grade. Um, he had sort of marginalized, but, but this discussion got him thinking of maybe I could reconnect with this kid that I used to be really uh, friends with in elementary school. And maybe that's a place I could, cause I know that's a nice kid. And then maybe I can find a way, you know, to sit one thing off from at the lunch table and move slightly away from, so this is literally like a logistics planning on these relationships, very concrete approach, particularly with younger kids and teens. I like it even for myself. And I think it's a great tool. And, and that is that sort of, like you said, move closer, move away. What about some techniques for distancing yourself when you can't physically distance yourself, which is more of that family thing? Or as you said, you know, maybe it's a coworker who you have to interact with. It's not an option to just walk away, move away from them. What are some ways that we can maybe distance ourselves, say, um, socially, verbally, in, as opposed to physically? And I think any kind of change like that, it's funny the way that you uh, uh, you framed that, I, I, because I was ready to jump to, hey, th- we've got some other principles here that could address that. But you nicely framed it still within the sort of very behavioral one. So that's, are there a couple of sort of techniques, uh, simple behaviors that I can do to see if there's an effect? So I'm going to stick just within these first three, because I, 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 the way you worded that was wonderful. I would say that any new type of behavior, we have to just try once, tw- twice, and see if there's an effect. And just find that one person, run it as a test, <laughs> and see if, see if it helps. So when I'm on the phone with my in-law, who's making me feel this way, when I'm, and, and try it out somewhere. And try that one thing. I'm not going to look defensive. I'm not, I'm going to control how my facial expressions are. I'm going to breathe before, maybe possibly do very quick meditation exercises before I know I have to go to work or I'm going to be near that coworker. I'm going to try to keep my mind on something else and try to depersonalize the whole situation. Um, and I'm going to try it there once or twice and see if there's an, an attendant effect that the other person doesn't come at me worse or it actually feels like I've empowered myself. So we, so we coach people on really start small, try out, be experimental, try one thing. And this gets into something I've been wanting to, to push uh, into a lot of my work uh, with people, which is let's do an inventory of ourselves. You know, maybe we're part of the problem. And I think if we're strong enough, mentally, emotionally, and physically, we can, we can open ourselves up and reflect and say, I can't be perfect. There's no such thing as perfect. Like maybe I'm not a victim in this. And maybe there are things I'm doing that may be contributing to this. And, and that gives me a whole nother set of possibilities to improve the relationship rather than just sort of curate it. And just one example, which is from our kids' lives. If maybe they have a friend who they say, you know, I don't enjoy this person. They're negative all the time. They gossip. They're always saying mean things about people, whatever. In that self-inventory, I think the first thing to do is step back and say, and what do I do when they do that? Do I chime in? Do I participate? Do I change the subject? Do I remove myself? You know, how am I participating in this or not? And, and the first thing is to congratulate that 
young person for recognizing that this isn't right and that this could be hurtful to somebody else or it's hurtful to them. Right there, I would say, you know what? I give you a lot of credit for, you know, good for you. You, you kind of know this isn't cool, right? Like, wow. Like, you really like pause and make a moment of that. Let them know that they're on the right track. Having that negative feeling uh, really shows you've got great values and, um, and you're a thoughtful, empathetic person. That's really something. That's cool, man. That's just terrific. Like whatever you need to do, really play that up. That's so important. People need that stroke at that moment. And then I, again, you, kids often have great answers if they were giving advice to other kids. So sometimes they'll say, look, let's pretend this was someone else. Like what have you watched and seen what other kids do when they're in this situation? Have you noticed anything that maybe a friend has? Um, like, like what could you do and get them to use some of their critical thinking skills, almost like solving a puzzle. Um, because then it's now less emotional, less personal, and they own it because they're actually trying to creatively solve the problem and you can help them through that. That's more of the teacher mentor model versus the parent model. I want to take the pain away. I want to nurture. This is hurting me too. Just don't do this or do that. And, and that just at some point doesn't work as well, right? You get a lot of eyes are down, closed, defensiveness sometimes from kids in response. So again, it may be a simple thing as um, I am just for now stuck with this. Um, I then step back and take the big picture. And it's one of the things we talk about in the book. And now we're sort of getting a little bit more into those, what we call the cognitive principles, the last four, which is how I think about things are just as important as the behaviors I do every day. And that's where there are principles that say, when I feel like I'm stuck, one of the things I can do, in addition to moving, selective association, control stimuli, one of the things I can do when I feel that tension in my body, when I feel wrong, when I, when I just know I need a change, I can step back and take a big picture view, which is in this case, all right, how long is it to the end of the year? When will the team no longer be meeting for this season? What, you know, um, um, how many hours in a day are you actually around this person or minutes or seconds? And step back and look at it bigger often helps kids, helps us to not feel as, as stuck and immobilized. I love that. I love everything about this conversation. And we will, of course, have a link to the book in the show notes so parents can get that. But in the meantime, anyone who would like to learn more from you or connect with you, where can they find you online, Tony? Uh, come visit powerofagency.com, powerofagency.com. And that can get you to my other website, just of my work, although there's a lot of overlap, but some new information there. Um, as well as uh, my co-author, Dr. Paul Knapper. And um, we have some videos on there. Um, you can even take um, the first of the seven principles online, just to sort of test out how well am I doing with control stimuli. It'll self-score it and give you some ideas. Uh, that's free of charge. Um, there's some printable graphics uh, under the resources page. Uh, there's um, um, a few links to some articles, podcasts, things like that. Um, so it's a great place to get your feet wet. I think when people think of this book, they think of, oh, it's a book and I'm gonna have to read it. Well, it's really something you can dive in on any one chapter. It only has seven chapters, one for each principle. There's a definition in the front, there's stories throughout. And then at the back, there's a simple sort of list of what we call toolkit items to follow. Fantastic. Well, thank you for spending time with us today and for the great insights into agency and what it can do for us and our kids. Thank you, Sandy. It's been terrific.
Mighty Parents, thank you for being here. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, and share it. Remember, that is how we reach other parents and help them get the tools and information that they need to enjoy their parenting journey more and to feel more confident in that. Thank you so much for joining us today. Remember that you are a mighty parent. You got this, and I will see you next week.